Are you ready to explore how people coordinate to build and empower your community to take action and solve problems to coordinate without any central authority? What? Bring in the OGs of the pre-crypto decentralized coordination space together with the pioneers of the cutting-edge technologies to fuse their ancient knowledge with the latest tools in order to fight coordination failures, slay Moloch and continue the endless search for the holy grails of decentralized coordination. Welcome to the front lines of coordination. Fuck. My brain is already melting. I hope you survive. Welcome, Will Radek, to the Frontiers of Coordination podcast. Thanks for having me. Will is the founder of Grassroots Economics, which is one of my favorite uh, projects doing good on the ground. It's a very cool and down-to-earth application of the technology we all find very dear. And I will uh, let him tell you all about it. But uh, first, I would like to hear more about the man himself. So, Will, uh, care to give us uh, a bit of an intro to yourself? Sure, sure. I, I was a, a, a physicist in the U.S. that got into economics back in, uh, you know, 2015 or so. Gosh, I, I, no, 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 time flies. And um, I uh, eventually went into the Peace Corps, and uh, the idea was to sort of apply a lot of these technologies, these systems that I was seeing in other parts of the world, around mutual credit, around community groups coming together and producing a mutual aid for each other. And I was studying a lot in uh, what was going on in Brazil with Bancos Palmas. And in Switzerland, there was a banking system called WIR and uh, Berkshires, Massachusetts. There was a lot of interesting applications going on. And uh, when I moved to Kenya, I lived in villages for quite some time learning local languages. And uh, over the years, I found that that traditional systems here are based on mutual credit. They are probably the origin of a lot of finance and mutual credit, which are basically rotational systems of mutual aid and credit that uh, go around communities. And so studying those and working with those and now working with blockchain technology in order to sort of uh, supercharge them in a sense by connecting them together, allowing them to exist on a distributed ledger where they can start connecting to each other. Right, and uh, so that kind of explains your uh, inspirations, and then uh, yeah, how how did you actually start uh, grassroots economics? Uh, well, mostly I would um, work. Well, I, I I had a lot of people I worked with in the Peace Corps and local villages, and made a lot of friends. And basically, they would take me to places where there were lots of businesses working together in in informal settlements or slums, and I would show them videos of Bancos Palmas. Uh, and a little bit of like Berkshires in the U.S. And I kind of just open up the floor and say, do you think we could do this? Do you think we could create a system similar to this? Well, how would you change it? And that was sort of the beginning of one understanding that these were actually traditional systems. They have, they have 42 different names for them in Kenya. There's a huge, very rich history of these types of systems that I saw in other places. And uh, basically the communities would come together and form a type of an agreement. And so in some sense, that is very similar to like a DAO, where they have an association that creates an agreement towards how they're going to actually manage these instruments now. And the instruments that they create 
as of today, are ERC20 uh, tokens. We call them vouchers. Back when I first started, we printed paper vouchers, paper bills. And essentially, they're credit obligations. They're redeemable as payment for the goods and services of the issuers. That's the, the community group itself. They can circulate within the community. They could also be sold in kind or for cash outside the community. And then they come back to the community. They've always had some sort of expiration built into them, even on the paper vouchers. Uh, digitally, now on blockchain, we create a, a inside the smart contract is demurrage. So there's a there's a gradual holding tax that comes back to a community fund. And basically, all the you know the social system around them in terms of kind of the legal system that that holds these vouchers in a safe way. That's it's about uh, you know graduated sanctions, um, you know mitigation of dispute by local parties. In a way, if you look at the contract that they create, which is a signed contract now, that is meant to hold the legal instruments for the voucher itself. It's something that eventually ought to be programmed into a DAO. If you think about this as a just opposing a typical DAO is holding an exogenous instrument. You know most DAOs are holding like a fund of US dollars or USDC or whatever it is, you know, Ethereum. These DAOs are holding a fund of an endogenous instrument, a local instrument that they create as a promise against their future production. So there's a lot of similarities uh, between what we see in blockchain as typical DAOs and what these traditional systems are. And really what we're seeing on the blockchain is really just, uh, it's a little bit like putting a die into the bloodstream and seeing these informal economies taking shape and forming it's really beautiful i can show maybe some slides we're doing audio only so no slides unfortunately but uh yeah tell us uh, tell us more about uh, the pilot project that you had and uh, how you got uh, grassroots economics adopted by these uh, villages so i mean the basic concept is that you get together i mean this is like prehistoric is that you get together with a few of your neighbors and you come up with a scheme or a plan for the year. Generally, it would be like a seasonal calendar. There could be a lot of different goals on that plan, you know, like what's your vision as a community to, to reach. And the action steps along that plan follow these, what they call locally on the coast, they're called muerias. In academia, they're called rotating labor associations, rolas. And uh, basically, there's a pledge, a commitment of the community towards helping everyone else in the community. And so if you imagine that as a liability, I create a liability as, as a community that I am going to help these you know six other families. So I have six days at least worth of liability. We can decide to create more than that. But basically they're, they're creating at the same time an asset, which is the promise to actually fulfill that liability. And so you can imagine this is kind of double entry bookkeeping, really the origin of it. And so let's say there's just three families. Two of those families come and work at my house first. We decide on a rotation. We decide what we're going to do. And let's say we're building a granary. Okay, so two families or more, usually more like seven or eight. The whole family comes to my place. I will provide some sort of food. So it's a bit of a celebration. And um, they will, like a work party, and they will help me build this this thing, this, uh, you know, build my house or, you know, farm my land or help, you know, prepare for water catchment and things like that. And generally, there's something like, you know, a 100x multiplier in that if I were to have done this labor all by myself, it would have taken me 10 days or 100 days, depending on what, you know, the action is. And by having this group come together, there's this multiplier, right? So they're using their time, their assets, and all together, and 
that creates this multiplier effect. It's way faster than any of one individually working on their land, right? And so they build this thing. I've got the thing. Wonderful. Now I am liable. I have, I'm in a debt. I have to go and work on their land or their make huts for them. And so I, my family spends the next two days working at their uh, houses and they all get built huts too. So three of these granaries were created. And let's say they represent something like 300 hour individual hours of, of labor, but they were done in uh, three working days, right? So you can imagine something like a 100x multiplier on, on that in terms of effectiveness. And there's a lot of examples of this where it's not even just physical assets we're developing there. there there's also social assets. Trust is being developed. There's all kinds of learning human assets in terms of skills are being developed. Uh, spiritual assets in terms of like sense of purpose is being built. Governance assets or political assets in terms of decision making are, are being built. And I, you know, generally we're taking care of natural assets as well. You know, we're doing this in a way that's, you know, like we use centropic agroforestry and stuff like that as well. And you're dealing with physical assets, obviously, and the the financial assets as well. So you're you're creating a flow with the, with that endogenous financial asset. They could also be storing. I mean, mostly what happened after colonialism is that they switched to exogenous assets. So more like your typical DAO now. They're using dollars now that is replacing what they used to use as a local credit, right? Instead of just using their trust-based system, now they're forced to use only national currency. And actually there was a big, that's part of like the imperial monetary system or colonialism is to basically push out any other forms of reciprocity than the, the national currency and then force people into taxation. And so that corruption or that centralization of trust happened everywhere around the world. And nowadays, the typical group or the typical DAO is limited by a scarce thing, which is the national currency or whatever value, you know, whatever exogenous asset they're storing. While as these groups originally, our ancestors, were only limited by their ability to commit their services to each other, right? I mean, there's still limited uh, liability. And that's really an important concept too, is, is that there's liability in these systems and it's limited by you know, that agreement that you're creating. So the ability and the concept of creating endogenous instruments in an association or a DAO, I think is literally the history we come from. And it's something I think we don't think enough about in the DAO world. You know, I think we're, we're mostly concerned with exogenous or external tokens that are being controlled by this DAO. Right. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of uh, villages and communities out there like that, that like they have uh, the needs, like the stuff that needs to get built. There's uh, people who can provide labor, but there's no currency to like actually facilitate the exchange between them. And so they're like locked in this situation. And that's exactly where grassroots economics or like any other community token comes in and so like uh, what has adoption been like like getting these uh, communities actually adopt uh, this technology like in, in terms of hurdles and getting them to like learn how to use it and all of that i mean if you're coming from the perspective especially in kenya or a lot of africa if you're coming from the perspective of traditional instruments that they can remember or their parents remember using you are uh, you know, you're already there in some ways. You're just saying, look, uh, you know, this was useful for your ancestors, right? Like, that's how that hut got built over there. Why aren't you doing it anymore? What are the problems, you know? And so coming in from that perspective, rather than introducing something new, you know, it's not about the technology. It's not about, you know, innovative, blah, 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 blah. It's like, how do we actually create more of a cultural renaissance, bring back this heritage that was really beautiful, that was stripped away, 
by colonialism. And uh, a lot of those traditions are really frowned on these days in, in a way. Like, you know, there was a campaign, if you will, like literal campaigns to basically destroy a lot of these this social fabric. And there's a lot of, you know, like the push towards market economies was part of that as well. Ensure that everyone has to have money to compete on a market rather than, you know, these local systems really counteract that, right? The markets become, the markets are fine, but they're secondary, right? Primary is your survival, your, you know, your community thriving. Secondary is, do we have a surplus to sell on the market? Well, wonderful. But we don't want to depend our entire lives on this external market that's controlled by a currency we have no say in, right? And so I think there's a lot of learnings we can, we can get from these traditional systems. And just uh, in terms of its scaling and the concepts scaling, I think there's communities all around the world already doing this stuff. And I think what's exciting about bringing blockchain in in a really decentralized manner is to say, okay, uh, in terms of having tools for accountability, for transparency, for security, and interoperability, and execution layer too, in terms of, you know, like the Demarage, for instance, it'd be very hard to do that without some sort of execution layer on the blockchain. So in other words, going into these communities and saying, here's this instrument that can work in your traditional systems. I don't have to explain your traditional systems to you. You know them ideally already. So that helps a lot. And usually it's not, it's not, definitely not me explaining it. It is a 65-year-old mama who sells tomatoes. Like she, you know, like Nadzua, for instance, off the, top, off the top of my head, she can go and explain this stuff in ways that I would never, ever be able to. So, you know, we have a wonderful team. I mean, luckily I can kind of uh, sit there and learn from all of our team members. And I do a lot of kind of the, you know, recording and, and kind of, uh, capturing the best practices from the field and then just saying, okay, this is what seems to be working. How is that working for you? We've got groups in refugee camps. Is it similar? Is there things that you need to do in the refugee camp to make this different? Uh, you know, or you, we're starting to work with Uganda, the Cameroon, South Africa, like in just understanding and pulling together kind of best practices around a lot of this stuff. So scaling horizontally, you know, uh, scaling with protocol and then working with other institutions to like the Red Cross or like World Food Program that can take these concepts, these agreements, and get communities to start, you know, appreciating their traditional agreements and visualizing them this way and, and making them tradable between themselves and local markets. So if you go to, uh, you know, like, I think it's, yeah, viz.grassicon.org or viz.sarafu.network, you can actually see the interactions between about 60 different communities uh, all trading with each other and, and doing their own little small mwerias or their rotating labor associations as well. And those communities are all like uh, near each other? Uh, no, I mean, they're spread out across Kenya, but there's clusters and you'll see different clusters that interact more or less with each other than others. So we go from the coast of Kenya to Kitui in the center all the way to the, the other side with Lake Victoria and Nyanza as well. Got it. And how does it work between the communities? So like each community has their own uh, currency and how do they like uh, collaborate or how do they do things together? Yeah. I mean, we, we try to actually avoid calling them currencies at all. I mean, they're really vouchers. They can act like a currency in terms of providing liquidity. But yeah, you've got Imagine you've got a Safaricom or a telecom that issues a voucher, a credit, redeemable as payment for using the telecom. That's all these are. It's like a mall voucher. They can they use it amongst each other. They can sell them for financing. And now if I'm another community next door and we also have one, well, what they have is a, a USSD slash SMS based wallet. That wallet, it, 
it goes through the telecom and connects them to the blockchain where we're pushing towards Celo right now. And uh, basically, they can list and use as many vouchers as they want on there, right? So you could have 10 different ERC20 uh, tokens in your wallet and you can access them via text messages and they send them to each other via this it's a, it's called ussd unstructured supplementary service data and it's like you dial star three or star nine six hash in kenya and you get this whole menu so like hit one to send hit the phone number of who you want to send to how much do you want to send them you know and then you would have also said which token which voucher that you want to send so they just end up with multiple vouchers in their wallet and there also are kind of middlemen or people who act as, in a way, kind of like a mini uh, exchange where they'll have one in their pocket and say, I'll sell you this one for so many of this one. But generally, they are the general rate is roughly 10 Kenyan shillings worth of goods or services for each voucher. Even in the different communities, they tend to standardize around that. Got it. Got it. That's cool. And so most of them uh, use the SMS, like that's how they send and receive these tokens? All. All of them right now. Like, and we're once we're fully on Celo, we can start working on like people can use Valora or MetaMask or any ERC20 or any Ethereum wallet. So we're starting to push toward web. But most of our users, I mean, right now, something like over 90% do not have access to internet, right? And so the internet, you know, wallet version of this stuff, like you know, an app or whatever, that's going to be more useful in the cities. We have a lot of programs in, in Nairobi, for instance, and whatnot, and other places on Earth where they have more Android phones and stuff. And it's it's growing. Like over the next five years, hopefully more than 50% of the people that we work with will have Android phones. But for now, the USSD, simple USSD access has been a lifesaver because it's also, it's also a custodial system in that we can help them reset their PIN if they lose their, their password. And, and believe me, we get like 200 of those a week at least, you know, of people who have forgotten their pins and stuff like that. So like being able to actually provide support and we have a phone support team to those people would be really hard if they were using MetaMask because, right? It would be horrible. And so like providing social password recovery and stuff like that, that's some stuff we would like to see in those wallets. Like, can I assign my mother as a custodian on a multi-sig such that if I ever lose it, lose my password, she can send a password reset or those tokens can be pushed to a new wallet. So. That's some of the stuff that we really want to see implemented on like Valora and all these different, you know, wallets. It's a little bit scary for us to, you know, recommend people to move to a wallet that if you lose your your key, you're just effed completely without having any way to do social password recovery. Right. Super important. And especially like if you're uh, living in a hut, it's also much harder to hide the seed phrase. Like even in the the more developed world, like people lose their seed phrase and this is <laughs> even worse yeah yeah exactly and so how, how long does it take uh, to get a community set up like get people and teach them how to use it yeah we usually do three workshops i mean it really depends on the type of community and and whatnot but we have a three workshop kind of system that usually runs over a month these are one day workshops so there's three one day workshops but then we tend to space it out so the first two workshops is really about vision and it's around c creating collective vision in that group with action steps so they we really have them even close their eyes and then you know envision and draw what do they want to actually achieve what are they actually trying to do as a community and and then look at their current reality and look at the tension between those two right like you know how much am i sort of held back from my vision and then what are the steps to release that you know that tension and uh, you know, with kind of smart outcomes, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound 
action steps. And then within those action steps now are these traditional muerias and also is the, the tool of you know, using blockchain for accountability and as well as for financing as well, right? So being able to sell these vouchers, being able to basically, like for instance, I'll give you an example, like they would be creating, one of the projects is to create food security, for instance, in this, in this village. And they say, okay, we want to have a farm or, you know, farms on every, you know, like a food forest on everyone's shamba, everyone's farms around this village. We're going to take turns going to there. That's part of the action steps. And we're going to use the vouchers to pre-buy the labor, right? So we're going to buy labor from the community and labor neighboring village to work and set these farms up, all the inputs. They can then use those vouchers, the people who use who provided labor, to buy the produce later on. So you're pre-selling your product, right? These are pre-sales, essentially, right? It's a promise against future production. So they can finance their operation in goods or services or cash now, get the inputs they need by pre-selling their production into the future. And they can also sell their existing goods and services. I mean, you know, in terms of audits and capacity audits, we do a lot of that. And generally, it's one month's worth of their audited capacity. So the amount of vouchers that they're creating is limited. This is also limits their liability, right? So limited liability is really an important concept. I don't know that people take limited liability, I appreciate it enough. A lot of systems on blockchain don't track liability in any way. And, and so in this case, we're saying you're, their liability, these vouchers that they're creating are liabilities, right? Because they are promises against their production. You wouldn't want to overissue those. I'm, I'm dissing a lot of blockchain projects, but a lot of them overissue. Right? They're, they're issuing so many tokens, I mean, even like gas tokens, they have very little ability to actually provide a service behind those. And so that's what causes this uh, volatility in pricing on most blockchain contracts. And the same with the US dollar, right? They're over-issuing the US dollar without any clear service agreement behind it. And so that constantly messes with pricing. These are meant to be very stable, very fixed utilities, right? These are not securities at all. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so it really like uh, depends on uh, case by case. And it's like sometimes the vouchers are for specific projects or people, not just like whole villages. Yeah, I mean, our specialty has been working with what we, you know, when we say mutual credit, we mean that there's a group of people that are mutually uh, liable. You know, there, there's a mutual reward, mutual risk uh, of the group. So think about like mall vouchers and stuff like that. So our that's our main focus. We have worked with some like, small cooperatives, small businesses that are more like a single node. Those groups, we try to get them to expand, to mutualize their credit. So it might start with a single group. And, and this is similar to like Sardex. If you look at Sardex in Italy, they're a beautiful system that started in, in Sardinia. And they started with very, very few businesses. Really, they were the first businesses. And they, they were a marketing business and they started to expand who could issue credit on their network, right? Who would they give a credit line to? And they expanded it out to many businesses. So usually we're dealing with an already existing group. They form, they can expand a little bit, but usually they don't that much. It's more like they, you know, another group will form. Then in some cases there's businesses. There's more like in urban areas. You'll start with a business and that business will extend its credit line out to other businesses and mutualize that way. Right. Makes sense. So to zoom out a bit, where would you say the grassroots economics is now? Like, what's the state of the projects? How many communities? Say like 60 something. Yeah, I think we're like 65 or so. I mean, we had about 
I mean, I you know, total number of users over the past few years is like 60, uh, 65,000 users. Those are families, and we had about $4 million worth of trade over the last year, year and a half. And that's, that's trade of uh, not dollars, but actually goods and services that have been valued on the system. And so it's been doing quite well. And I think that, you know, like the approach is very much, you know, decentralized that, you know, it's, it's, there's training, there's adoption, there's, you know, communities really understanding those traditional practices and, and, you know, starting to maintain these. It's really like developing a commons, an agreement. You know, if you, if you've read any of like Eleanor Ostrom's work, you know, there's a lot of basic principles around management of a commons and a commons can be a, a pool of water. It could be the pool of money that a DAO has, but in this case, it's also the agreement, right? The agreement itself is held in commons, and those instruments that come out of the agreement, like the vouchers now, these ERC-20 tokens, they, they're for sure a commons, right? Because they're being maintained by a, a group. There's clear rules and boundaries on their usage. There's sanctions on improper usage or you know, default behavior. So there's a lot of similarities with how we think about commons, and I think that's it's nice to it's nice to dive into that. And ideally, you know, like these types of systems for groups of service providers, they should make sense, right? It, just like they make sense to all of the ancestors of the people we work with here and, and, and whatnot. But they also make sense for telecoms, right? Telecoms issue subscriptions, vouchers, redeemable for their services. Airlines do this. I mean, it's not that complicated of an instrument. And uh, so like the basic idea of a voucher or a subscription a promise against future production with certification, with auditing and whatnot that can all be on chain. To me, that is the basic use case or a basic use case of blockchain. I mean, when I see, when I hear, you know, like read the, the Bitcoin white paper and they talk about, you know, community currencies, this is what I think they're talking about. And I think historically, like if you look at a lot of the community currency research and all these examples over the years, the ones that were very, very successful had clear liability, right? It was clear who was backing these vouchers with what services. If you look at systems like Wargle in Austria, for instance, you know, the city was offering them as a, as a tax credit. You know, there was really clear liability around who was accepting them. And I think, you know, most of blockchain has gone the other way. Let's just, you know, print money, basically. Print money, but without having any clear liability whatsoever. In fact, Avoid any liability at all cost is usually the, the modus operandi of blockchain users. You know, like we don't want to be liable in any way. And usually that's because they don't want to be get taxed. They don't want to get, uh, you know, SEC after them and, and whatnot. So I think the idea of holding utility tokens, which are not securities, is also really attractive. You know, it's, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the real effort to offer real services to people that people actually want. I mean, ideally, you know, even doing that in community, you know, with networks of businesses, like the concept of networks of service providers providing services and then creating tokenization against those services. I mean, that is the, the crux of like even the gas token itself, right? There's a network of node service providers providing validation services for a blockchain and you create a voucher redeemable for access to that blockchain. Like that's that's the basic Web3 concept distilled. And so if you are providing a bunch of transportation services, energy services, services within the village, creating a voucher redeemable for those services is a really basic business concept. 
that shouldn't shock anybody. This shouldn't be like a new idea. In fact, it's the oldest idea probably on the planet of groups of people creating a mutual credit amongst each other to, to access their services and get a multiplier effect on their network. So I think we're just doing something extremely normal. It seems strange just because we live in such a strange world where we've had centralization of money for so long now that we've, you know, we've forgotten completely that we didn't evolve this way, obviously. Right. Yeah, I mean, like even Starbucks is doing it. Like you can subscribe to having uh, coffee in advance and have these vouchers. Yeah, exactly. And what would a network look like that connected Starbucks credits to mileage plus miles to airtime credits to this community currency to that one? That would look something like a decentralized exchange, right? So the concept of connecting consumer or producer credits or mutual credits together across ledgers or within ledgers, like it's such a no-brainer concept that I feel a little bit frustrated here and there just to have to even describe it to people. It's like, well, why are we already doing this? <laughs> right. You know, and that idea of currency now comes out of that, right? So currency is not a thing, it's a verb, right? It's a thing, it's an emergent phenomenon from networks of credit systems that connect to each other. Right. That's that's what the currency now is. And yes, you can still have central nodes, central units of account, for instance. I mean, we're still using national currency as our unit of account right now. There can be all kinds of those, you know, going forward into the future. But that that network, that visualization that you can sort of imagine of this these clusters that, you know, it looks a lot like a neural network. You know, if you're into AI these days, like that, that neural network, you know, that neural market uh, network or neural exchange network. What does that look like and what information is being stored on there? And, you know, how do we kind of become more conscious as humans uh, about that stuff? Right. So uh, how, how does the, the grassroots economic spread? Like, do, do you have communities getting other communities to join or do you do a lot of outreach yourself or yeah, how does it work? Yeah, I mean, we're really trying to not spread, you know, and, uh, and just, you know, explain what's working to other groups and get them to do it themselves. So we build a lot of open source, you know, uh, AGPL3 software that anyone can use, you know, so if you want to hook yourself up to a telecom in another part of the country, that's great. If you want to use our smart contracts, we're trying to make that easier and easier and easier. So like any grandma can deploy her voucher or publish her voucher on a blockchain, doesn't cost anything, yada, yada. So that's, that's it, just making these systems easy to use, you know, explaining, you know, the best practices we've learned from community groups here, just sharing that information. And that's it. That's how we're trying to to spread. We don't want to open branches in different countries or anything like that. Right. Yeah, going more towards like the self-service rather than growing the organization, which increases the liabilities. <laughs> But uh, how, do, how does the organization itself uh, become sustainable? I mean, our main clients right now are humanitarian sector because we can show at least a 5x multiplier on any cash they put into the program within three months, right? So literally, like, if they're they're going into this village and say, okay, well, the cost of going out and doing that training is X, we can show you on-chain, you know, with, with verifiable blockchain transactions that their economy is increasing by, you know, at least 5x over this time period. And we've done a lot of, like, control trials and research to be you know, show that effect over time. And so if you, you know, going into these communities, what we've done is 
in a lot of cases, we've gone into communities where the humanitarian sector has failed, but they've done years and years of projects, and we bring that community and that market kind of back to life using these traditions. And so that's been our, our main client has been organizations like the Red Cross, World Food Program, GIZ, that really just want to be more effective with their financing, right? And so to show that if you're going to take this exogenous instrument, the U.S. dollar or whatever, and you want to inject it in a strategic way into a community to build resiliency, well, first of all, you ought to be measuring that resiliency. What does it look like? What does that local economy look like? And for the most part, they have no idea, right? They have no data on actual local resiliency. And so in some ways, this is just showing, oh, okay, here is the, the local economy. Here's what it looks like when they don't have shillings, you know, our national currency. And so that's... That's been it. I mean, I, I think, you know, in terms of research, you know, getting funds from universities that want to research local economic systems, that's been another uh, big thing with us. And then just, you know, providing customizations and help in terms of tooling and training in other places, you know, like East Africa. And we've done a bit of work in South America, like Colombia, and that's just tra training work. Makes sense. That's super cool. And uh, what, what would you say has been the, the toughest part of the journey? Mm, well, they did put me in jail here once. That was hard. But we, I, our whole, like, six of us went to jail and uh, we ended up winning our court case. But it took about six months, to, you know, to get cleared and everything. But uh, that was hard. So, I mean, there is definitely pressure against these types of things. Just like during colonial days, there's pressure against traditional methods of resilience, right? So, if you're helping communities become so self sovereign, well, there's a lot of energy towards making them not sovereign, right? Making them dependent on the financial system, making them dependent on their local government, stuff like that. So I think that's, that, that's been hard. And so, you know, like uh, getting local government sort of on the bus in terms of saying, well, like the demurrage system, those, those taxation systems, well, some of that, the community can agree that some of that goes to the local chief or the elders and stuff like that. So that's reducing administration costs. So that's, you know, on the legal side, I think, We've made a lot of strides in terms of like defining these as legal instruments and defining them as vouchers. That's helped a lot, actually. And then I would say, like in terms of seeing replications of these systems, we have had a few. Well, one particular organization I won't mention who they are take our software and use it as a big giant airdrop, where all the taxation went into the local governments, and uh, without any of the you know local creation local liability or anything like that and basically kind of reproduce the problems with the existing system where there was really no services behind it so i mean and of course people can use blockchain in general it wasn't you know they used our system in terms of the the connection to the feature phones to do something and uh, we had to be very clear with our standards and say well that wasn't you know a mutual credit that wasn't a community generated project you know, that's, that's really just an example of centralization. It's risky as well, you know, and they, they didn't really test it. They tried to do this on a massive community group all at once, like 10,000 people across, you know, in three different areas without any local cohesion, no vision process, no uh, agreement building. And I see, I mean, this is very similar to a lot of the, again, like the blockchain world. They believe that the only thing limiting a currency is the number of users. They don't believe in liability or services behind currency. Most people, like if you talk to MMT people or people who don't care about inflation, they say the more money out there, the better, because it'll generate more economic activity. 
they they don't look at the downside or the liability at all. And so most a lot. I mean, I, I I should stop saying most, but you know, like you see this zeitgeist a lot. Like you know, let the money fly, and that will build the economy. That's a very risky proposition. And what our ancestors did was not that. It was clearly limited liability based on their capacity to help each other. And there was still a multiplier effect. They still built serious assets. But but what most of these companies on blockchain and even you know governments want to do is they don't want to provide services. They want to get richer and richer and richer and concentrate that wealth into their own pockets. They're not interested in providing services. A lot of people are not. And that's what I think we really need to need to change and be, be conscious of and aware and actually get into credit scoring, you know, risk scoring. A lot of these oversold cryptocurrencies and uh, national currencies. Right. Yeah. Airdrops, airdrops. And uh, would you say that uh, they're like uh, did it intentionally or just like they don't know? I, I mean, it is a documented imperial method. It's called monetary imperialism. During colonialism, airdropping is one of the methods, right? What you do is you, it's like, it's the golden arches. Come in, come in. Oh, look at, uh, look how great this money is. You can buy drugs with it, right? You could buy sugar and tea with it in Kenya originally, right? That's how they start. And then, just like blockchain, then pretty soon they're trying to force people to only use that currency. They start taxing people with it. I mean, it's generally the introduction of currency has been violence, right? It's forced people into being stuck with this currency and having no liability and no real promises behind it, right? You can, the, the king can print as much as he wants. They're his gold mines, you know, back in the day. Or nowadays, you just, you know, like the, the bank can issue basically as much as they want. There's very little regulation around it whatsoever. And the same with, with the, the crypto dudes. They, you know, they can mint as much as they want. It's a simple little command line to mint another billion. And then they throw those all out to their buddies and their friends and they try to convince everyone to use their blockchain or use their system, but they have no liability. I mean, it's, it's literally a system almost built for, for Ponzi scheme. <laughs> right. All right. We're getting close to your hard stop. So let's get to the final question, which is like, what has been the most rewarding part of it or like what gives you hope for the future? I just seeing um, groups remembering the songs of their parents or their grandparents that they used to sing when working together and doing these these customs, these traditions of supporting each other, seeing those coming back. I think it's super empowering and, and heartening to know that we are from peaceful people, that we had hundreds of thousands of years of social capital development, right, before we got into traumas and wars and centralization that our basic steady state as humans is cooperation and mutual aid. And that these, these technical financial instruments come, a lot of them come from that. Actually, they come from this peaceful state growth of humans. And if you look at like the growth of the Amazon was human constructed. Most of the Amazon was built by humans. That, and the same across Kenya, building forests or, you know, is, is part of our ancestry. And we would do it in these traditional cycles of mutual credit amongst each other. And that money was a tool for that vision. It wasn't the goal, right? Money was a tool to, to bring us together, to build social capital, build assets, to build you know, natural assets and social assets. And you can really see that history and you can see that history coming back here in just the, the communities that we work with. So that's been really powerful. And I think that message is really important that we, you know, there's no 
this idea of homo economist as this greedy, you know, cave dweller is totally false. And that's a recent invention because of all the trauma that we've gone through. And that this current system we live in right now is, is a massive trauma response. It's a trauma that tells people, collect, collect, collect as much as you can because you should be afraid, you, you know, that you, you can't trust anyone, right? And, and really, the opposite is what we ought to be doing right now. Right. Awesome. Well, I hope uh, more people wake up to these old ways of doing things and uh, the more people start using what you're building. Thank you very much for coming on. This was great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Have a great day. Bye.